we're very glad to see such a good turnout. I'm not quite sure whether it's because of Dr. Sonnenberg or because the subject is C.P. Snow. But anyway, uh, C.P. Snow himself participated in some of the early sessions of British studies. This was back in the late uh, 1970s when we used to meet over in the Mosley Room. We were a much more cozy group then than we are now. Uh, and we found C.P. Snow to be very congenial, very willing to participate in discussion, to take criticism, to offer his own views, his colorful views. Uh, Dagmar remembers him because he always wore red socks. To, uh, the Dean of Undergraduate Studies, Brent Iverson, was... Is Brent here? Well, you're supposed to be introducing our, our speaker, so would you like to come up, Brent? <laughs> So, how many people know who Dr. Sonnenberg is? How many people do not? Okay, I would have to say that I've known Dr. Sonnenberg for four years, three years, four years, and I still don't think I know all about him. Um, he's one of the most remarkable people I have met because of his breadth of the things that he does. And he came to me as a dean of the School of Undergraduate Studies with a concept for a new bridging disciplines program. The only problem was virtually everything he talked about had to be created from dead scratch and get a lot of input from a lot of different people and a lot of excitement from a lot of different people. So I said, that sounds like a fantastic idea. I'll help support you, thinking no one human being can pull this off. And so Dr. Sonnenberg comes to us with an incredible background in medicine, in psychology, but really just in being an overall smart person. And I don't know how else to say it. Um, and what has been amazing to me is this one person has pulled together people from all over campus, 10 different departments or something like that, to put together what's going to be one of the most exciting bridging disciplines programs for our undergraduates that are thinking about how they're going to combine a liberal arts type of critical analysis and thinking with medicine. This is so long overdue. And I'm completely indebted to Dr. Sonnenberg for being able to pull this off because it takes a heroic effort. You have actually done this. And so we are about to see this launch. It's going to be coming very soon. And um, I, I don't want to advertise that program other than to say it was an amazing effort by somebody who I have incredible respect for. So uh, with that, by way of introduction, Dr. Sonnenberg. Thank you, Brent. Thank you very much. Here's the chair for you. Dr. Sonnenberg. Thank you. And uh, thank you, Brent. That was really very kind. Uh, you know, as usual, my wife of 56 years uh, has declined to uh, attend uh, a talk I'm giving because uh, she's heard it all so many times. Uh, that, that's the truth. And, uh, but now that this has been uh, audio taped, uh, I, I, I can make her listen to it. Uh, so this is good. Now, I, uh, I'm going to go very fast because I want to do this in 50 minutes. There's a lot to say. And there are people here who I talk about, and they may want to comment uh, after the talk is over. And we do want to have time for questions and answers. So uh, bear with me. I'm going to try to do this quickly. In order to understand this talk, you need to understand that there are 
five uh, themes or goals, all of which intersect, but I want to just tell you what each of them is so this will make sense to you. First of all, this talk is based on a memoir. Now, the memoir has been uh, a book that's been in gestation for more than a decade. It didn't start out to be a memoir. But I will, uh, on September the 23rd, I will be closer to my 80th birthday than my 79th. So I thought, okay, now's the time. I will, uh, I will do this memoir. The talk also reflects a theme that runs through the history of psychoanalysis. And also, it could be called a personal autobiographical oral narrative history. Now, in fact, from a psychoanalytic perspective, those, those two terms, or the, the, the long description and the term psychoanalytic, are really synonymous. So just to put this in historical perspective, uh, one of Freud's greatest discoveries came as a result of his self-analysis. He had analyzed uh, a woman named Irma. It didn't succeed. Uh, he met a colleague who uh, informed him that the patient who had finished the treatment uh, against his advice was not doing well, and he had a dream that is referred to in the, uh, the, the dream book, uh, in, the, in the interpretation of dreams, as the dream of Irma's injection. And Freud self-analyzed his own dream. And he used that self-analysis to define what he considered to be the purpose of dreams, which was to fulfill wishes. And he was very open in the dream book, this is my dream. Someone who was less open but also autobiographical was Heinz Kohut, who really changed the direction of psychoanalysis by inventing self-psychology. Now, the reason he invented it is he had had a very unsuccessful analysis with a very famous analyst, and he was not happy about it. He had become a major figure in, in psychoanalytic thought, and eventually he wrote about and talked about the second analysis of Mr. Z. Now, he didn't explicitly tell the world that he was Mr. Z. But in fact, he was Mr. Z, and he had analyzed himself, engaged in a great deal of self-reflection to create a healing narrative that had not been created in his first analysis. These are just two examples. And many analysts will tell you that the greatest discoveries in the field come from self-reflection, certainly uh, in, uh, in a tradition uh, of uh, uh, Plato and Socrates that Paul Woodruff always talks about. So you're hearing something personal, and uh, this is at least part of my discipline's tradition. It's also an intellectual historical narrative because it really brings into focus the power of an idea. Everything you will hear today reflects the influence that C.P. Snowd had on me when I was a junior and senior in college, which was right after his 1959 Ready Lecture. There was a man at Princeton where I was an undergraduate, R.P. Blackmer, a critic and a poet, and a super intellectual, and he talked about snow all the time. Now, in my years at Princeton, the typical pre-med did not major in science. For one, one thing, there wasn't nearly as much science to learn as undergraduates as there is today. 
But in addition, we were really encouraged to major in the, in the humanities. So here we were, uh, about 100 uh, young men in a class of 700, all men, uh, about to embark on medical school, and we were hearing about C.P. Snow all the time. And that certainly fit into the undergraduate tradition that I experienced at Princeton. I majored in uh, history. Um, so Snow's ideas were extremely important to me. They reinforced ideas that I was experiencing all the time, and I'm going to talk more about that. Um, the notion that science and the humanities, that scientists and humanities scholars had to work together to solve the major problems of the world was very clear to Snow. And he particularly was concerned with certain problems. He was concerned with disparities, uh, he was concerned with nuclear war, he was concerned with overpopulation. He saw no way these could be solved if people from both fields couldn't work together, and there's ample evidence that he was right. Now, finally, or not finally, but I also want to say that this talk is an educational commentary because it shows the impact on me of involved teachers and mentors encouraging me to feel comfortable working on the cusp of my own discipline, which I know, and other disciplines, which I don't. One of the, uh, one of the, th the, the things I think we are really emphasizing here at UT is encouraging students to be interdisciplinary. And this was certainly, uh, certainly something that you're going to hear all about today, and it's certainly something that, that is very, very important to me on a personal level as well as in my role as a teacher. So, um, uh, and, and this kind of work really requires nurturance and mentoring. And I'll say more about that, but you're going to hear about that. I, I also want to say one other thing. To, to not, not so much to the students, but to the, uh, the old, older people in the room, many of whom are faculty members. I think at this university, at its best, we mentor each other. We nurture each other. And I think that's how we learn. And there are people in this room who have done that for me. And I hope I have reciprocated. Uh, so you're going to hear about that in the talk. And finally, this talk is about a naturalistic experiment. Now, I am trained as a researcher, uh, as, a, as a quantitative researcher at the National Institute of Mental Health. But I have chosen to do non-quantitative research. I'm very interested in research that, that allows for the development of hypotheses. And not, and not just in the humanities, but in, in the relationship of the humanities and the sciences within medicine. So um, what, what, what writing this book and preparing this lecture actually constitute is a naturalistic experiment that leads to a kind of hypothesis which I hope we will test further. And you'll hear about that. Now, in order to understand this, um, there's a, a little bit of a prologue here. First of all, I'm going to tell you the title of the book that, uh, that, that 
that began very differently, which is the, really the foundation of this talk. And this is the title, 10 New Commandments of Doctor-Patient Communication and Healthcare Practice. And on a lighter note, the subtitle is A Doctor's Adventure of Discovery at an American Research University. And that is autobiographical. Now, when Roger asked me to do this talk, he said, well, send me uh, a blurb that we can send out. Now, I want to read you the blurb that I sent to him. I think that's, again, going to be uh, informative about what you're hearing. My title was R.P. Blackmer, C.P. Snow, and what I learned after my 69th birthday at the University of Texas at Austin. And this was what my, too many words, but this is what I sent him. Steve Sonnenberg, uh, a medical doctor, psychiatrist, and psychoanalyst, has spent the last 10 years writing a book about health care. As he has learned more and more as a faculty member at our university, the structure of the book and its narrative have changed. The book began as an issue of a psychoanalytic journal when it was to be a collection of essays discussing how psychoanalysts make clinical decisions. But I, I will describe how during the, this last decade, I developed deeply important relationships with several UT faculty members who influenced me to continuously and alternatingly look backwards. And I mean backwards in time, forwards in time, and also inward. And in the end, this book is kind of a, a, a personal history, a memoir that traces the development of my thinking about healthcare starting during my pre-medical studies. Now I'm gonna, uh, I, I don't think I need to go on with this description um, because uh, I'm going to cover that ground in, uh, in the rest of the talk. But the, uh, the description you got, uh, much shorter and, uh, and I think less personal, but nevertheless it got you here. Well, you know that and I don't, I don't need to uh, go over it. So now, um, I want to issue an apology in advance. Some of you came expecting a talk where I would mention C.P. Snow over and over again. I actually think every word reflects the influence that that had on me. And again, I, want to, I really want to stress this. The power of, a, of an idea can be life-changing. And this is something that we can do for our students. And this is something that the students in the room really should be looking for. Look for those, it doesn't have to be a single text, but look for those texts that change your life. And, and they do exist. And the Ready Lecture, it's not very long, changed mine. Now, so I said this is a, this, this memoir is a naturalistic experiment. And it involves the breaking down of silos that's possible at a research university like this, where one can find a great deal of nourishment and mentoring. And I, I can't emphasize how important that is. So the talk is about the evolution of a book from a psychoanalytic decision-making issue of a journal into a book that really uh, talks about breaking silos and mentoring. So 
I was on the editorial board of this journal. One of my former teachers was the editor-in-chief, and he made the mistake of saying to me, uh, I want you to put together an issue of the book on psychoanalytic decision-making. I recruited 10 psychoanalysts to write essays, and then I realized I really didn't want to edit that issue of the journal. So I, I passive-aggressively let it lie long enough because I knew that these people who had agreed to, uh, to, to write for, for me uh, were, were very busy and they were going to pretty soon have other things to do and they were going to forget that, that I even asked them, which none of them did, but when I finally got around several years later as saying, well, are you still interested? I breathed a sigh of relief when they said, no, no, not, not anymore, I'm too busy. And that allowed me then to re-recruit a different group. There were a couple from the original group, and I'll tell you uh, later who they were. So um, then, again, the, the book, the talk, the, the, the message I have is about how to learn, how to break barriers, how to break silos, how to receive and give mentoring, and the value of that in promoting learning at the university. And um, I've already mentioned C.P. Snow and his three great problems. I just want you to keep that in mind. Uh, disparities, overpopulation, nuclear war. Um, in 1959, when I encountered Snow, there actually wasn't a lot of talk in the academy about working in more than one discipline. In fact, the department system that we're very familiar with for all of its strengths and all of its weaknesses ruled the day. That's the way people operated. And uh, there was this guy out in California who would write on the American psychoanalytic listserv about the value of working in two disciplines, one of which was your area of expertise, the other of which was something that you were just learning about, and you dared to declare that you weren't an expert in that other field, and develop a relationship with a text, with texts, and learn. And, you know, I think one of the interesting things about uh, knowing uh, a scholar uh, who, who you have a personal relationship with and whose work you then read creates a very interesting experience in your own mind because you actually have a conversation with that scholar. You don't just read what she wrote, what he wrote, what they wrote. You, you read and you absorb and you imagine a conversation that you're having with that other person, with that nourishing source, with that mentoring source. And you actually experience a conversation as you study. And of course, if you're here, where we really do have a university community, you even then have the advantage of going to that person 
and discussing your ideas and discussing their ideas and, and, and developing together a new set of ideas. And, and that kind of a dialectical process, that kind of an innovative, creative process is extremely important and we need to do more of it. Um, and I will say that the School of Undergraduate Studies and the Bridging Disciplines programs and the Signature Course programs really speak to that in, in a very, very special way. So, um, on the website, Pete Lowenberg wrote about how new ideas emerged when people worked on the cusp of two fields. That's not my phrase, that's his. And I, I, I didn't know him, uh, but I decided I was going to get to know him. And as soon as I could, which was 2005, when a conference on uh, the relationship of architecture and psychoanalysis took place here, and I'll say more about that, when I had the opportunity to work on putting that conference together, I, um, I, saw that I, I made sure that he was uh, one of the invitees and one of the uh, uh, invitees to write uh, an essay in the book um, when I reconfigured it. Now, um, let, me, uh, let me tell you um, about the memoir again. It's, it's not a typical memoir. Uh, first of all, there are 10 essays by 11 really, really generous contributors, uh, one of whom is, is, uh, is Louise. Um, and um, I'm going to say something about Louise's contribution, Louise Weinberg's contribution, in a, in a little while. Um, but in order to understand my relationship to C.P. Snow, my relationship to this book as it evolved, uh, this atypical memoir, which includes 10 contributions from 11 other people, I want, you to, I want to read to you a letter that I wrote to uh, President Fenvis and Provost McGinnis at the time of the Fine Arts Library crisis. Now, who here knows about the Fine Arts, who here doesn't know about the Fine Arts Library crisis? Oh, well, I will tell you about the Fine Arts Library crisis. Um, one day, people on the faculty became aware that a proposal was made to ship a large number of fabulous fine arts volumes to a depository somewhere near College Station. Students would be able to get them. They simply would have to say that they wanted them uh, and you know, request them, and presumably within a week or so they would get them. Now, you know, I don't know if anybody here is an art history major, but can you imagine uh, what is lost when an art history major doesn't have access to stacks filled with books with, be with beautiful images in them and, and that student can't go through those stacks and have adventures of discovery 
all the time. No, I have to know what I want and I have to ask for it. Well, so uh, Steve Hulsher was the chairman of American Studies at the time, and uh, uh, he, he and I had gotten to know each other and I had become an affiliate member of his faculty. And I discussed an idea I had with him because uh, they were soliciting letters from faculty members to protest this. And uh, when, when Steve and I talked, he said, you know, write that and, and we'll see what we'll decide to do with it. And what he decided to do was to have me send it to, uh, to the president and to the provost, along with, with, with other letters. But I think this says a lot about C.P. Snow and me and some very, very nurturing, nourishing, nourishing mentors that I had as an undergraduate. Here's the letter. I'm writing because my own life was changed by an experience with a real book, which I read, held, touched, and looked at repeatedly and related to somatically, viscerally. So already you know you should be able to hear in this, if you're a doctor, you, you would be sure of it, when I start talking about the visceral and the somatic, I'm talking about medical science. And when I talk about the experience of reading, I'm talking about something that has more to do with the mind than the brain. That's where the humanities come in. When I learned of the effort to remove books from the fine arts library and store them at an off-campus location, I felt concern. As an undergraduate, I explored the open stacks of my university's library, pulled books off the shelves, had unexpected adventures with them, and discovered so much about the world and myself. I was also motivated by that experience to purchase hard copies of many books so I could hold them and read them without concern for a library return date, and mark them up. Now, one adventure stands out. I was 20 years old when I first read Melville. And I was privileged to have as my professor the legendary Larry Holland. He was my lecturer and he was my seminar teacher. The course I was taking was for very advanced undergraduate English majors. It was like organic chemistry for pre-medical students. It was the one you took to prove you were on the right track if you aspired to a career as a literary scholar. And parenthetically, one of my classmates became the chair of the English department at Harvard. I don't think he got an A in the course. I think he got an A minus. It was a really tough course. So I was a history major and a pre-med as well, and I hadn't taken an English course since I studied Shakespeare under the guidance of Alan Downer as a freshman. And one good friend who went on to a very distinguished career as a Victorian scholar dared me to take the course, and I think that propelled me to do it. Now, in the book, I may say a little bit more about him. There may be people in this room who know him, and he was always very arrogant. And so, you know, he dared me, and, well, what, what could I do, you know? I took the course. But he did have, uh, he's retired now. He had a very, very distinguished career. Under Holland's instruction, I became passionate about Faulkner, James, Twain, and Melville, and explored the library stacks focusing on them, on those four writers. Being a methodical reader, I purchased many books so I could own them and mark them up. When it came to write the major essay for the course, being a slow reader, I chose a short story, Melville's Bartleby the Scrivener. As time passed, I really dug into that story, 
turning pages forward and back, reading sentences over and over, trying to figure out what it was about. In those days, and this was spring semester 1961, my last in college, students like me, and I'm, I, I was not unique in my class, I, we, we were like this, we did not run to the summaries of literature that might have been available. We tried to come up with unique perspectives on what we were reading. I wrote a first draft of an essay about the story, but even with Holland's critique of my draft, I felt lost. In fact, I believe Holland wanted me to feel lost because he was at odds with Lawrence Thompson, his respected English department colleague and friend, over the nature of Melville's view of God. I think Holland wanted all his students to feel confused by competing theories about Melville and develop their own points of view. But as I worked to understand Bartleby, I didn't know that, at least not until the close, uh, to the, close to the very end of my effort. So I remember looking at the increasingly grimy pages of my edition of Melville's short stories. The color changed by the sweat and dirt that came off my fingers as I worked and reworked the story. What I recall is that at a certain point in time, looking at the top margin of a page, I saw the word job. I was young and not all that self-reflective. He knows something about me. I was a rugby player. <laughs> and I, I didn't ask myself how that form of visual imagining had occurred. But while I knew that word was not printed on the page in ink, but rather by my mind, I simply, directly, and enthusiastically embraced what I had seen and started to think about what it meant. Now, I, I have to also emphasize that before college, I had not spent a lot of time studying the Old and New Testaments. And until just then, I hadn't thought at all about the book of Job. That is, I want to emphasize, until then. And I really ran with Job and Job. I knew Melville was very engaged in inquiry about the nature of God, and that Holland was engaged in an inquiry exploring just what Melville thought about God. At that point, I went to my friend, the future Victorian scholar, feeling I had something to discuss with him. And we talked about Melville, Bartleby, Thompson, Holland, and the competing views of two distinguished professors that, that two distinguished professors held regarding Melville's views on God. I wrote my paper and received very warm praise from Holland for my own inquiry about what the story might tell us about Melville's view of God. Holland appreciated how I had focused on a concrete aspect of the short story, a person's refusal to do his job. He appreciated how from there I inferred another dimension of the story, its relationship to the book of Job. Even more importantly, this experience, intellectual and tactile, somatic, visceral, I didn't say this in the neurological, this allowed me to make a career decision. I decided I wanted to go to medical school because I had learned something about physical human experience handling that book over and over again. 
there was something I wanted to learn about the human body and what it can teach us. I came to think that there was a relationship between mind, brain, and body that I wanted to explore. I wanted to know more about how my own mind and body had worked to create that experience with a book, that appearance of a word on a page I was touching and looking at that told me so much about a short story. The next year I started medical school and discovered psychiatry and psychoanalysis. I realized that I had a special attraction to words and uh, their different, often hidden meanings. These words might come in the form of free associations by a patient in psychoanalysis or in the form of what a participant observer might generate as an imaginary capital J became a lowercase j and then back again in my mind's eye. Removing books and placing them in a depository and depriving students of the opportunity to handle them is throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Looked at within the framework of a research university, I personally think it is almost like burning books. It is disrespectful of the art and craft of writing and creating a book and using it in the service of scholarship and teaching. Finally, for the record, I appreciate the value of a computer, because they wanted to digitalize all these books. I know it is very useful in academic team building. I know it has many advantages as a tool in the hands of scholars who perform valuable research and teach, and students who learn. I know digitalizing books, photographs, paintings has enormous value. Today, in fact, it allowed me to download Bartleby the Scrivener and run a word check just to be sure. Neither Job nor Job appears in the text. <laughs> and then there was, a, if I can be of further service. Now, um, if you can't hear snow in that, and appreciate that now at nearly 80, then at nearly 21, that those ideas really were, were formative, foundational in my thinking and in the way I've lived my life. And I'm talking here about the way I live my life on this campus, but it's also the way I live my personal life. Now, um, I want to uh, talk here about catalysts and enzymes. I wasn't sure you were going to come, but I figured, you know. So I'm going to tell you about three, uh, actually, you know, I actually think they're enzymes, not catalysts. Um, I mean, enzymes have a catalytic function, but they're different. So I know a little science. I, I'm going to be careful, and I know I'm going to get graded on this, so I'm, I'm trying very hard. First, Elizabeth Danzi, who was the interim dean of the School of Architecture, who would be here, but she's with students in Europe. She and I met because I was submitting an essay to a book, a psychoanalytic annual volume, that she was guest editing. And we conceived of the Space and Mind Conference, in, in 2005, we, we, the conference was held in 2007, and eventually uh, we created Space and Psyche, uh, which uh, Fritz Steiner, the former dean of the School of Architecture, says, is the most, says it is the most beautiful book he has ever seen. And I, I'm just 
telling you that I'm very proud of it, and I'm very proud of the work Elizabeth and I did together, and she was the enzyme. Um, the, uh, uh, the, the, the book, I was responsible for the text, she was responsible for the images, and we worked together, and it's won several awards, especially because of its design. But we did something else that was particularly unique. We encountered the model of development of Eric Erickson, who'd been analyzed by Anna Freud. He had no PhD. In fact, he'd only gone to school, I think, as a Montessori teacher. Uh, but he was a professor at Harvard. And, uh, and Erickson had created this model of human development. And he himself said, this shouldn't just be two-dimensional on the printed page, but it was. So Elizabeth and I decided we were going to create a three-dimensional model so we could better appreciate the, the relationship of development at different stages of life over time. And if you can just imagine a three-dimensional model, it really, it really depicts time in a way that you can see in a very concrete way. So we thought we could do this in two weeks. It took us three years. But uh, we did eventually present it at some scientific meetings. We got an IRB approval to use it in working with students at the university to assess their own development in the course of courses we were teaching together. Uh, and, and the uh, article uh, about it was published, that we wrote, was published in the Journal of the American Psychoanalytic Association. But during that process, I realized something more vividly than I ever had before that I had been trained to think in very linear, exclusively linear ways by very authoritarian teachers using a very positivist, almost 19th century model. And that hadn't changed much when I was learning to be a psychoanalyst. When I was learning to be a doctor, and I, if we had two hours, I could give you some vivid illustrations. And what my relationship with Elizabeth did, and this is really remarkable, it changed the way I thought. Because she taught me to, to think in relationship to time in different ways. And I, I have to use spatial models to describe this process. She taught me to think in circles. She taught me to think in, in, in spheres. She taught me to think in swirls. She taught me to think like a helix and not a straight line. Now, just to put this into perspective, I was finishing college and starting medical school when uh, Watson and Crick told us about the structure of DNA, the double helix. And I can tell you that the notion of a double helix was was awe brought was was greeted with wonder and awe by people in science. Uh, by the way, just for the record, and I can't remember her name, but they never gave credit to the woman they worked with, who Franklin. who was Franklin. yeah. Thank you. And of course, they wouldn't have done it without her. And I would not think this way were it not for Elizabeth. But. Um, I mean, we, we were wowed by the idea of a, of, a, of a double helix. And that, I think, speaks to the fact that we were really trained to think so linearly. And that has its disadvantages. It's, it is, it's restrictive. 
And if this lecture seems to be moving around in different directions, I hope it doesn't, but it's because I don't think as, linear, as linearly as I used to. I have more than one way of thinking. Now, I also want to talk about somebody who's in the room, and I will not embarrass you, Pauline, but Polly Strong, the director of the Humanities Institute, and a very, very distinguished uh, cultural anthropologist and expert in uh, Native Americans and women and gender studies, um, took me under her wing. I was at first a guest fellow at the Humanities Institute because I had an appointment at Baylor Medical College. And eventually our relationship grew and I, I, I became the first uh, fellow in residence in the Humanities Institute. And I'll tell you what you taught me, Polly, because you are a consummate scholar, but you are also a public intellectual. You are a very committed person, committed to using your knowledge, not just to write a wonderful book that I know, that I've read, but, but also to change the world. Now, psychoanalysis, even though Freud, of course, was very much uh, uh, you know, an attention getter, um, psychoanalysis taught us that why we shouldn't even give a talk to the PTA. Uh, we were supposed to be anonymous. We were supposed to be very secretive behind a screen. So, uh, it, and, and that was my field, and that's how I was trained. And since I was trained to think in very linear ways, I certainly didn't think about having a, a major influence, a major public presence. But in the, uh, in the seminar, and Dave Edwards was there, we studied intellectual life at moments in, in, of crisis, and I actually learned that there was such a thing as a public intellectual, Sub subsequently, I learned that there was such a thing as medical humanities. And actually, as a result of all this, Art Markman once came up to me and said, you know, you have a life's work, and your life's work is to blend humanities and science to fix a broken healthcare system and teach this to the next generation of, 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 of future healthcare providers. And this is all part of the UT community. So, Polly, I realized that I had been working in medical humanities for decades. There was, the field had no name. There was no organization to bring us together. But a long, long time ago, I wrote a paper pointing out that Hamlet did not suffer from an Oedipus complex. He had post-traumatic stress disorder. This, this, was, this was heresy, but of course I was right. As it, not, not, not always, but that time. So thank you, Polly. And finally, uh, Brent Iverson, who really is an educational visionary. And, and I will tell you that, you know, you talk about how sometimes I'm walking around that track late at night all by myself. Well, you, you've been my partner. And that is very important to me. And that's mentoring. So the book, the talk, all of this is, is about culture at the university a culture that produces ideas. Now, I'm going too long. I'm, I can't do all this. What I'm going to tell you is, is that I have come up as a result of those essays, those 10 essays, with 10 new commandments of patient-doctor communication and healthcare practice. 
Now, only one person who submitted an essay has been exposed to the way I used their essay, because it's not what they intended. And that's Mike Starbird, who I happened to see at lunch today, uh, not entirely by chance, and because we're on a committee together, and along with, with the British Studies lunch, uh, that committee was meeting, so I popped over there at the end and, and, and figured I'd better get a, an idea about how Starberg would feel about what I did with his essay, and he, he, uh, he, he thought it was okay. So I'm just going to talk about Louise Weinberg's essay. Now, uh, by the book, you can read all about all of them, but I'll tell you about Louise. Louise has a secret ambition. I, I know this. She really wants to be a mystery writer. You won't deny that, will you? And she wrote a wonderful, wonderful paper for this book, which I was supposed to, to use to talk about decision making in different fields. And she talked about uh, uh, Supreme Court ju Justice McReynolds, who was a cantankerous guy, and, and he, he, did, he made a decision that nobody could understand. It was a mystery. But um, Louise solved the mystery in this paper. Now, I also, by the way, happen to have used uh, Sherlock Holmes in one of my medical humanities papers to talk about high-functioning addicts, Conan Doyle uh, also uh, was a, a mystery writer and, and a doctor. And so I, you know, I am very interested in mysteries. But here's the seventh commandment of doctor-patient communication and healthcare practice. Investigate a mystery. Every clinical encounter is a mystery. Every patient is hard to understand. Empathy is a skill which must be continuously practiced and honed. In every clinical encounter, you must see yourself as an explorer of new territory. Can you put up with that, Louise? Thank you. Well, that's what I did with the nine other essays, too. So I'm going to bring this to a close because I've actually got about four minutes. Now, let's go back to snow. And, and by the way, you were promised that I would tell you about how psychoanalysts thought and made decisions. And what I've tried to convey is that they, they, they were by the book, they were linear, there were rules of engagement, and I can't tell you the contemptuous exchanges that I have witnessed take place between two psychoanalysts who had slightly different basic orientations arguing about why one was blasphemous because she broke the rule. And this is not a great way to conduct uh, intellectual discourse, but that, that, that's how I was trained. So, um, when Snow spoke of the two cultures and the world's great problems, he listed, as I've said, disparities, overpopulation, and nuclear war. He suggested that scientists and humanities scholars need to work and think together. I would add, there are two more threats. 
two more huge problems. And one is global health as a human right. There's no, there's no such thing anymore as local health. It's all global. Germs fly on planes. And if we don't recognize that health is a human right and make sure that everybody has it, we are endangering the species. That may be an exaggeration, I'm not sure. Maybe Jeremy Suri will tell us at the end whether that's an exaggeration. And the other great, great challenge is climate change. So we've got five now. Now my experience obviously is much more mundane, but it does add a dimension. And it is when a scholar in a particular field, humanities or sciences, reads in another field, especially when he or she knows the creator of the idea that she or he is studying and can imaginatively elaborate on that text, have a conversation with that colleague in one's mind, imagine it, think about it, and then of course go to that colleague and talk about one's ideas, new ideas can emerge, unique ideas can emerge. This is, a, this is a, a more mundane version of what Snow was writing about with a broader, much broader brush. And given what I've told you about the authoritarian lin linear thinking in medicine and psychoanalysis, what you've heard is how new ideas that involve nonlinear thinking um, can emerge when silos are broken down and mentoring occurs. Uh, so, uh, Louise, you, you may think, well, you know, we've had dinner together many times. You didn't know you were mentoring me, but I was trying to soak it in, and uh, hopefully I, would, I was successful. And, and I say it's nonlinear thinking because I'm preoccupied with, with the healthcare crisis, but why, when I'm reading her essay, if I'm reading it in a more conventional way, am I going to translate that into something about how I, how I deal with patients? And, and that I would call as kind of th think of as, as thinking in a swirl. Um, also, the ten new commandments of doctor-patient communication and healthcare practice speak to one of Snow's great problems: disparities. What Snow referred to as disparities. And today we can say good health, uh, good, good health and health care as a human right is a fourth, we can say that we can combine the notion of disparities and health as a human right and recognize that we have a tremendous crisis because of health care disparities. So if we're going to think about health as a human right, we have to think about healthcare disparities, both on, an, on the national level and on, on the local level. And so that's a concrete contribution, and I do believe it again reflects Snow's influence. And finally, I think the project that I'm talking about, the book, has added another possibility to what can emerge from breaking down silos, an unexpected 
somatic, un I'm sorry, an unexpected, unanticipated possibility, but really a predictable possibility with snow in mind. The idea that new perspectives emerge from working on the cusp of two disciplines or three or four and, and having the humility to work in a discipline where you aren't an expert. So I want to close by thanking Roger, who really, uh, we met a year and a half ago, and he's been very kind to me, and I thank you for giving me this opportunity. And I also want to mention Zachary Suri. Now, a little while ago, Jeremy Suri invited me to talk about health care his, on his podcast. And I had met Zachary, but um, I didn't know he was a poet. And at the, at the podcast, every week, Zachary writes a poem. He's 14 years old, and he really is good. So uh, just, and, and, and at the podcast, his, his poem really became the, the theme of what I had to say. So by chance, unless you believe in a higher power, this very day, I received another poem by Zachary Suri about our problem with guns and killings. A, a great poem. Now, I think in, in, in commenting on this lecture, Jeremy, I, I, I'd be interested to know if you agree with a speculation of mine. I think you've managed to, you and Allison have managed to raise Zachary thinking out of the box, not thinking linearly. I doubt, as smart as you both are, that you are, you, you deal with him in an authoritarian or positivist fashion. I suspect you really give him a lot of space to grow and a lot of mentoring and a lot of love. And I think that's what we all have to do here at the university with each other and with our students. So thank you.